welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de la and Ina Corriel. We've already read all of Ina Corriel's stories. Philippe, we've read all of his posted stories. He has two in the works, and they are Momentous and Finding Home. And Gabrielle Lawson, we've read all of hers. Mine, they're all mine. <laughs> Except for the Faith Trilogy, the one we're reading, and her two whips, which are Perchance to Dream and The Path Not Taken, and any other future short stories I have to write for Bucky, which I do have in my brain. As of yet, I don't have any other short stories in any other fandom in my brain, but I do have Bucky ones. That means I might be finished with all my Julian Bashir stuff. Maybe. With fan fiction, the stories in, stories out thing, you know, kind of like, it, it, it's true. It was so much easier to come up with ideas when the show was on. And that was the case for a lot of treks. Alt.StarTrek.Creative was busy in the 90s and into the 2000, early 2000s because that was when TNG, DS9, Voyager, and then Enterprise were on. Now, it kind of has spurts with the, the films. I haven't seen a big reemergence with Discovery. It's not a very active news group anymore. News groups in themselves are not very active. If they did the Alt-Struck Star Trek Creative Awards for 2020, I would win in two categories. Why? Because I posted two stories. So, <laughs> um, no one's a whip, so, you know, it, it, it wouldn't win because it wasn't finished. But the other one, The Honored, was. It would win Best Deep Space Nine General Story in a sweep. Because, as far as I can see, it was the only Deep Space Nine Gen story that was posted. That's sad. That used to be the place to find your Star Trek fiction. And the ASCII awards, the ASC awards, were fantastic because they were built around feedback. I asked and was given permission to borrow that format when I made the Middle Earth Fan Fiction Awards, which are taken over by someone else, and I believe they're kind of defunct now, too, because the Lord of the Rings movies are over. Go figure. Now, some people write from the book, so there's still fan fiction out there, but the movies juiced me. I read the book after seeing Fellowship of the Ring two times. I read the whole thing. Um read the whole trilogy before I saw it the third time, something like that. Um, so I love the book too, but I also love the movies because as I've told you before, I don't visualize well. I have something of a picture when I read a story. I do. It's not that I don't visualize anything. There are people that don't. I do visualize something. But seeing that movie gave me images of the people in the fellowship of the places in the, the book of the creatures. So it, 
I love it. Yeah, they made some changes and some changes I don't understand, but others that I do, it's, you know, it was great. But stories in, stories out is still a thing. It means that when you're watching stories, you're inspired by stories. This could be reading, your eyes are seeing it, or you could be listening to an audiobook, but the stories are going in your brain. <laughs> TV shows, movies, books, uh, sounds, um, they're going in your brain. And then they come out, not those stories, but that's where the inspiration starts to move and where the magic comes to life. And then suddenly you've got a story idea. <laughs> so stories in, stories out. I'm going to borrowed from a tech term, but I can't remember exactly what the tech term was, but it's, you know, the stuff you put in is the stuff you get out. But anyway, it, it, it makes sense. When the shows aren't on the air anymore, it's harder, even though you love those characters, it's harder to imagine stories for them. So it's not impossible. It can be done, but it is harder. But anyway, I started the Honored or when Deep Space Nine was still a thing. Or was just be ending as a thing. Maybe just ending as a thing. So it was, it was still, you know, fresh. I finished it long after that. <laughs> so um, it was kind of fun to go back to Julian Bashir, to go back to Kira to go back and play on Deep Space Nine and to build the world of Gidar. And we are going to see a lot of Gidar in this chapter. So I hope you will enjoy it. I want to make a couple corrections from last time. I thought that I posted my April Fool's um, prologue <laughs> back right the next year. But it turns out I did it in 2004. How do I know this? Because someone i was going through my reviews of the honored i have a database where i record all my feedback and so i have a report that shows me all my feedback doesn't tell all my comments and reviews it doesn't tell me where i got them or who they came from it's just the review and one of them says i found your april fool's post from 2004 you are an evil person i read that and i just started laughing <laughs> Yes, I am evil. That makes a good fan fiction writer. Keep your evil in your writing, not out in the world, okay? <laughs> Be evil in your writing. Jerk your readers around. Tug on their heartstrings, make them laugh, make them cry, make them stay up all night doing skipping their homework just so they can read your story. Make them accost the postman so they have to could sit right down there and start reading them all and jot a letter back from London and send it right back to me. And I don't know how she read all that that fast. But you want to catch the reader's emotions and you want to make them feel. And that can be kind of evil. <laughs> so, and it's kind of a fun evil to be. So, and you can't go to jail for it. So, you know, nobody actually gets hurt. So, unlike some other evils out there, this one is rather mild. And I've always said the good evil is when they thank you for it. And if you're good at being evil as a writer, they will thank you for it. 
So, yeah. I love that they said I was an evil person, and it was a very evil thing to do on April Fool's, but it was April Fool's. <laughs> but it was 2004. And it turns out chapter one had 9,000 words in it. No wonder it took so long to read. And I'm looking at the scroll bar for chapter two. It's tiny. So I don't know how many words chapter two has, but we aren't reading chapter three tonight. That won't work. So we will read chapter two coming up. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, The Honored by Gabrielle Lawson. Chapter two. Odo sat alone in his quarters, feeling himself dripping down his face. He needed to rest, but he felt no reason to do so. He had no will to change, to move, to live. Nerisse was gone. Over and over he played the recording, a copy he'd made from the logs Sisko had found. Bashir went down, and then she was thrown over to him. The shot came from behind, and she crumpled over the dead doctor. Dead. Gone. Taken by a founder. One of his own people. What was life now without her? There was nothing left. Not among the solids. Not in the link. Nothing. He was alone. Odo? It was a familiar voice, one which Odo didn't want to hear just now. Odo? I know you're in there, Pally, it said. I heard what happened. Figured you could use a shoulder to cry on. Why don't you come over? I can't come there. Go away, Vic, Odo finally answered, forcing himself to form the vocal cords that gave him voice. I don't feel like talking. I figured as much, the singer said, still a disembodied voice over the comm system. I figured you're sitting on the floor contemplating your emptiness and melting all over the carpet. You need to talk to someone, Pally. It doesn't have to be me. Who is there left? Odo asked. Nerisse is gone. So is Julian, Vic said, his voice sad. I rather liked the kid. He was having a rather tough time of things. I hope he's getting some rest now. Who needs to talk? Odo shot at him, angry now. Me or you? Woo there, pal, Vic said. No need to yell at me. Why don't you do yourself a favor and turn in for the night? I'll still be here when you need to come by. The comm channel closed with a click and Vic was gone. Silence filled the room again and Odo wished Vic's voice would come back. A tear fell from his eye and reverted into the golden color of his natural form. He couldn't hold it anymore. Following the tear, he sunk to the floor, spreading out over the carpet. He didn't know if he'd ever get up again. Nodgren was a sparkling mountain, inlaid with lights or jewels, standing tall against the red and furious sky. We must stop here and continue on foot, Tarlingen stated, breaking the silence that had filled the car. Kira had to force her eyes from the mountain and back to the comparative plainness of the transport. Tarlingen stepped into the next car, presumably to give orders to the others who were carrying the supplies. How can something be so beautiful and so ugly at the same time? Bashir asked her. You mean our liaison? Kira asked. Bashir shook his head. Her, the planet, that mountain out there. He pointed out the window where a village was taking shape at the foot of the mountain. I don't know whether to be fascinated or horrified. I know what you mean, Kira said. 
You think you find something understandable and then something different comes out to blow it all away. The transport slowed and Tarlingan returned. You'll need to cover again. The sun still shines. She led them outside again into the village. A crowd had gathered, but their attention was not on the newcomers, but on a scaffolding not far from the transport. What's going on? Mishir asked as Tarlingan led them in that direction. I do not know. She stepped up to the crowd, but it didn't part. She shot! She barked. Heads turned, and taking in her black cloak, they bowed and moved away, allowing passage. Kira could see now the commotion, and it froze her steps. The face was purplish, the eyes the same reflective white. He was Gidari, but the features of the face were very human. Malin, Bashir breathed beside her. Julian, the Gidari called. So they got you too. I don't get it. I left you for dead. Silence, another figure in black ordered, pulling back on Malin's silver hair. You may not speak to the honored. Malin, whose hands were tied behind him, snarled in pain, but the man seemed not to care. Forgive, honored, he pleaded to Bashir. He will trouble you no more. Bashir seemed at a loss. Tarlingan, impatient that they had stopped, walked back to them and whispered, Forgive. We haven't time for this. I knew him, Bashir said. What are they doing to him? You do not know him, Tarlingan retorted. He is not the one you remember. He is Harglan Nostroff the Younger. He has taken life. She spat at the ground at the foot of Nostroff's platform. His life will be taken. Bashir continued to stare. How? He found himself asking. Forgive and let us go, Tarlingan ordered quietly. It is not your purpose. Still staring at the Gidari on the platform, Bashir nodded. Kira turned back to the platform. The Gidari there, the executioner, she guessed, bowed and then raised Nostroff's hands behind him and secured him to a post there. He stepped back and off the platform, which was removed by two others on the ground. Nostroff screamed as his body weight pulled him down, but his hands, secured to the post, stopped his fall. He continued to writhe and groan after the initial fall. His shoulders snapped and he fell again, but only as far as his arms would allow. Bashir, beside her, turned away. It is done, Tarling had said, impatient. Let us go. But it wasn't done. Kira could still hear the man as they passed the crowd and moved far farther into the village. If she turned her head, she could see him wriggling there, shaking from pain as he hung above the people who watched and shook their fists at him. He started screaming again, and it was a long time before Kira couldn't hear or imagine his suffering. Bashir didn't say another word. Finally, the sound was left behind in the little buildings lining, lined busy streets around her. Little purple-faced children ran around chasing each other and a small reptilian animal which squawked in excitement. All parted in front of Tarlingan, though, obviously aware of her station. Some of the older children bowed in respect. All the adults did. A plaza was up ahead with an ornate fountain depicting a battle with an oversized Gidari woman in the center. We enter Nodgarin, Tarlingan said. We must drink of the water. She stepped up to the edge of the fountain, and Kira and Bashir followed just behind her. Tarlingan slipped off one glove and dipped her hand into the water, which dripped like blood past her fingers, red like the sky. She jumped back, extending her hands to either side of her to guard her charges. Farsing lot, she yelled. Runners came from all around the plaza toward the fountain. They carried spears with them. Kira strained against the arm at her waist to see what had caused the alarm. The wall of the fountain was just below waist high, 
and she could see over the edge into the dark red water. Strange fish were serenely swimming there, with heads made mostly of huge, ghostly, translucent teeth. But there was one thrashing about, forcing the surface of the water into turbulent waves. There was something covering its head, something black, but Kira could not make it out through the fish's convulsions. The runners were apparently familiar with it, however, and they jumped on up onto the wall, their spears held ready. They were mostly men, but Kira doted a few women, women among them. Gender was not always a determiner of station or status, Kira decided. One of the men yelled something unintelligible and thrust his spear into the water. The water fought back, or the fish did, or the thing which had the fish. Kira couldn't tell, but the man struggled to keep his footing as the spear twitched and spun. Finally, he fell right over into the water. There was a collective gasp of alarm among the others who kept their spears at the ready. It was a deep pool, judging from the fact that he fell all the way in, pulled down by the constant grip he held on the spear. Finally, he faded from view altogether, and Kira was amazed that the thing, whatever it was that had a hold of that fish, had been able to kill a man. It couldn't possibly have been more than a dozen centimeters across. A dark shadow moved somewhere near the bottom of the pool. It rose and formed slowly into the figure of a man, silver hair catching the light that filtered in through the water. He reached a hand up and was caught by one of the others, one of the women. She pulled, jumping down from the wall, and the man came up, dripping water from his face, but smiling. He got his footing and sat on the wall with his feet still dangling among the startled fish. He lifted his other arm. The spear came up with it. It was broken in the middle, but it held the black thing on the end of it. He held it up for the others to see. Farsing lot, he cried in triumph. It's a water bug, Bashir said, as surprised as she was. And it was. It had six gangly clawed legs ra radiating from a thick black torso. At one end was a head with no feature so prominent as its angled fangs. It was a water bug, but apparently a vicious one. One thing you learn on Gidar, Tarlingan said with a hint of a smile. She and the other Gidari around the fountain bent down to kneel on one knee with the left leg placed on the ground perpendicular to the right foot. She stood. Never drink with a water bug. She waited for the man to exit the pool before standing up to dip her hand in again. Drink, she told them. Bashir shrugged. I guess it can't hurt, he said. But he didn't remove his glove. He dipped his hand in, lifting the edge of his hood with the other hand so that he could drink the water. Kira took a deep breath. They were fish in the water. She could deal with that, she told herself. She had drunk from rivers and streams during the occupation, but a man had just been in the pool, and he had just killed one of those bugs in the pool, and she hadn't had to drink from a river or stream in six years. It wasn't her idea of re refreshment now. Still, she didn't think it worth a scene. She followed Bashir's example. The water was cool and surprisingly sweet. Tarlingan was already moving off toward the tall mountain. Bashir followed, and Kira followed him. Every building they passed poured forth people who stared at the honored. They just stood, staring, whispering to each other, until Tarlingan and the entourage came up even with them. They bowed then, like a long moving line, a caterpillar moving. The bows flowed up the road, past the buildings, toward the mountain. But Kira was struck more by which bow? It was not the one that the that beige-cloaked Gidari gave in deference to Tarlingan. It was the one that Tarlingan gave in deference to her and Bashir, the honored. The village was a small one and was behind them in minutes. Still, Gidari lined their way, though in admittedly lessening numbers. The mountain loomed ahead, growing larger at every pace. Kira scanned it, looking for a grand palace, shining spires, tall towers, perhaps. But all she saw were trees and rocks and snow. 
At least she thought it was snow. It was red like the water in the pool. Oh, and there was the sparkle that seemed to have no source. At the base of the mountain she saw a cave. Tarlingan stopped before the entrance and told the others to leave the supplies. From the inner darkness of the cave, twenty new Gidari arrived, each in the black cloak that Tarlingan wore. They picked up the supplies and carried them inside, disappearing into the darkness where the sunlight didn't reach. The way is sacred, Tarlingan warned, and there is no light. She pulled a cord from her sleeve and passed one end to Bashir. Take hold, lest you become lost within. The cord was too short to pass on to Kira, so Bashir held out his hand to her. Tarlingan nodded, apparently feeling this was adequate. Kira had not been inside a cave for several years, but the memories came back to her easily. A cave was safety, at the same time it was risk. It offered shelter, but threatened confusion. One could simply get lost, just as Tarlingan said. There were jagged rocks hiding in the darkness, but those same risks kept the enemy or an, in in or an intruder at bay. As the last of the daylight left her behind, Kira felt the darkness close around her. Literally, she could feel it. She remembered that, too. At times it had been a comfort, a refuge from the ugliness of life made visible by the light. At other times it had been a curse. Now she wasn't sure how it felt, only that she felt it. Bashir felt it, too, it seemed. His fingers tightened around hers. Ezri Dax sat at the bar at Quark's and waited for Quark to settle down. He was busily bobbing from one customer to another. Lita saw her, though, from the promenade and entered just as Quark put his tray down and met her at the bar. "'What can I do for you, Lieutenant?' he asked, dro tactfully dropping his usual smarminess. "'You can toast with me, Quark,' she told him, to Julian and Nerisse. "'Me too,' Lita said, sitting down beside her, "'if you don't mind.' Esri looked over at her and smiled. Lita had no reason to be nervous about asking. She had been a friend of Jadzia's before Esri knew her, and she and Julian had been involved before she'd married Rom. Of course, Esri told her. They were your friends, too. Quark set three glasses on the bar and filled them. I've said it before about Bashir, he said. He was a good customer. Esri raised her glass to that, knowing it was high praise for, from a Ferengi. And Nerisse. A woman all the way, he added. She would stand up to anything. I admired her. It was rare to hear Quark speak so sincerely. One could almost forget he was a Fringi. I did too, Esri said. She was strong, Nita agreed, but also kind and sensitive. She had a heart. Esri raised her glass again. Julian had the biggest heart of anyone I'd ever met. And he didn't even know it, Lita added. He was special. Quark raised his own glass. They both were. Esri sat with them for perhaps another hour and then left Lita to Rom and Quark to his customers. She wanted to be alone. She wandered the promenade past the infirmary and the temple. She paused for a moment there in the door. She remembered Julian's face looking down at her, at Jadzia. He was worried and busy, but she could see the hurt in his eyes. He knew from the moment he saw the readings on the tricorder that he would lose her, and it hurt him. She remembered, and now she felt it in herself. Seeing him in her mind's eye, she was looking over him as he died, as he looked had looked over her. She had lost so many people now that she was Dax and not just Esri, but the pain was always so hard each time. It never got easier. Darkness. He'd had darkness before. It both unsettled him and calmed him. He'd been in a cave before, several in fact. And then there was the cell, the dark cell in the bunker of Block 11. He'd called the cell his refuge, and it was. 
but it was also a place of pain and death. If the door hadn't opened every few hours, he would have suffocated. The air stifled him. He felt that again now. He couldn't see Tarlingan anymore. He couldn't see anything. Remembering his agreement with Kira, he forced his mind to concentrate on the path he couldn't see. It was easier than focusing on the memories. They had gone straight in from the entrance, which had been wide and open. It was there that he heard a faint roaring, the echo of water falling in another area of the cave. He wished now he'd removed the hood, but he knew it would do little good. Absolute darkness was absolute. Only light could let him see, and they left the light behind at the entrance of the cave. Tarlingan, linked to him by the cord, had moved farther to the left without turning, perhaps indicating a narrowing of the path. That was about twenty meters ago, and the rushing sound diminished with every step. Now the cord pulled him to the right. His head hit something. Hard. But it didn't hurt. He did, however, drop the cord. He couldn't help it. Tarlingan was shorter than he was and probably went right under whatever it was, but he had hit it. When she kept going, the cord was pulled from his hand. He didn't move. It was safer to stay put. Are you all right? Kira asked, having apparently heard the impact that Bashir had barely felt. Didn't even feel it, Bashir told her. However, we've lost our guide. Forgive, Tarlingan's voice came out of the darkness. I forgot your height. A short rod of blue light appeared, casting a soft glow on the completely flat walls of the cave. He couldn't see her, but he could see her hand. She held the cord again. Please, we must hurry. The light winked out as he took hold of the cord. The cord immediately became taut. Bashir ducked, hoping to clear the low ceiling, and was pulled along. In turn, he pulled Kira along with him. They turned left after another ten meters. The floor began to slope upward in a steady fifteen-degree angle. Sixty-five meters and then left again then right almost immediately. They continued on like that for perhaps an hour or a glyph, turning this way and that and this way again. Every once in a while, he'd feel a breeze from a connecting pathway, but no light ever permeated the darkness allowing him to see it. It must be a maze, he thought, but Tarlingan's pace never wavered. She knew the way by heart. He would, too, by the time they arrived at their destination. There were times that being genetically enhanced became a distinct advantage. When the light finally opened up on them, it was the white artificial light that he was used to back on, home on the station. It strained his eyes, making him glad for the hood. Tarlingan stopped, perhaps to allow their t eyes time to adjust. They were in a hallway, but it was more than that. The ceiling was four stories above his head, and ornate railings at every level looked down on the new arrivals. The hallway was perhaps a hundred meters long, with no visible connecting corridors to break it up. He could see doors at the end of the hall, two doors as tall as the ceiling and carved with gold inlays, though he couldn't make out any images or symbols from that distance. Tarlingan had taken the cord already as it was no longer needed, but Bashir didn't feel like letting go of Kira's hand just yet. Still, it might be taken for weakness, and this did not look like a place for weakness. He dropped the colonel's hand. May we? Kira asked, as and she paused for just a second. Uncover now? No, Tarlingan answered, replacing her own hood. We go before the leader. All must remain covered. She took a breath, and Bashir thought perhaps she was nervous. When we are in the chamber, you must remain silent. Answer if you are spoken to, but be brief and respectful. Follow me and repeat my movements. This is very important. Life and death reside together in the chamber. She dropped her head and dusted off her cloak. Then she looked from her own feet to those of her guest. Bashir looked down, too. Dust, strangely not mud, covered his boots. From here, 
Tarlingan indicated, slipping her right hand beneath the left lapel of her, of her cloak. Bashir reached to in, inside his own cloak and found several pockets there. Tarlingan drew out a silvery cloth, so he felt in each pocket for something similar. Kira found the cloth as well, and so all three knelt to dust off their boots. Your head, Tarlingan reminded, and Bashir remembered that he'd run into the ceiling earlier. But of course, he couldn't see if there was dust there or not. I'll get it, Kira offered. With one hand, she held the front edge of his hood down as she dusted with the other. Tarlingan stood and replaced the cloth with ease. It took Bashir slightly longer to find the correct pocket again. The Gidari looked over her charges carefully, and Bashir began to believe her about life and death, though the threat was weak when he was already dead. Finally satisfied, Tarlingan gestured that they should follow her down the long hallway. He glanced upward as they walked and noted that now the railings weren't the only things looking down on them. Blue faces with white eyes peered at them from above. They were lighteners, he surmised, as they wore the black as Tarlingan. Some wore a combination of red and black. All looked on with interest, but did not appear very surprised. The doors were huge, and the engravings were of the mountain and the world beyond it. The gold accented the sparkle of the mountain, the rays of sunlight, the streams of water. It was beautiful, but there were also figures in black etched into the doors that Pashir hadn't seen from farther back. These were predators and dangers, storm clouds and shadows hiding among the trees like life and death together. Two black and red cloaked Gidari stood at the door handles with long bladed staffs held at the ready. Tarlingan stopped about 20 feet back and turned around to face her guests. When we march, she said, sounding like a teacher, we either make sound, she demonstrated by stamping a foot, or we do not. She picked up one foot and took one step forward, her toe touching down before the heel. It looked very much like a horse prancing, but it made no sound at all. In the chamber, she continued, we want silence. Our hands, she held up her hands, allowing her sleeves to fall around, around her elbows, must also be placed with care. She turned her palms inward and crossed her hands until the thumbs caught each other. Then she lowered her hands so that they lined up e evenly with her forearms, which remained straight across her torso. Bashir looked to Kira and then repeated the movements. Tarlingan nodded her approval. Now, beneath the cloak. She dropped her hands and her sleeves fell down again. She raised them quickly, following the same movements to cross her hands beneath the sleeves. She waited for Bashir and Kira to get it right, and then nodded again. We do this only as the door is fully open. Once in the chamber, we will stand. You will see from me how to stand. She turned sharply, a correct about face. More teaching, Bashir thought, but he already knew that one from the academy. He hoped Kira had been paying attention. Tarlingan stepped forward, now stopping only five feet before the doors. She stood at attention, arms to her sides, as the two attendants turned to open the massive doors. Bashir watched her arms. They didn't move until the doors were directly perpendicular to the walls that held them. He snapped his hands up just when she did, folding them perfectly beneath the folds of his cloak. She pranced. He pranced. Kira kept in step just to his left, and the three of them entered the room. It was more impressive even than the hallway or the four-story doors. The room gleamed with gold and silver. Weapons hung from the walls, alternating with religious or cultural symbols. A long carpet lay across the floor, connecting the doors to the throne at the far end. There was no other furniture on the main floor. The throne itself was oversized and raised on another level, perhaps a full meter above the floor. There was no sound, and no one sat upon the throne, as Bashir had expected. In fact, it appeared that the three of them were alone in the great cham chamber. 
Tarlingan stopped five meters in front of the throne. Bashir stopped behind her and waited. Tarlingan didn't move, so neither did he. And then she came. The leader stepped through the back wall, though Bashir didn't see it happen. Lower your head, Tarlingan whispered urgently. Bashir did it as he was told. He could just see the leader's booted feet from under his eyelids. They came to the front of the throne and then stood still. There was still no sound. Tarlingan bowed, slowly so that Bashir and Kira could see her movements. Her arms crossed so that the backs of her fingertips touched each other. Then her arms swept backward, as with all the other bows. This time, she put her right leg back, taking her bow lower as she dipped her head. She waited for Kira Bashir to execute the bow and then stood again. This time, she widened her stance and placed her hands behind her back, though she held them a little ways out from her body. The tips of her thumbs and pinkies met each other. What is this? A voice thundered. But it wasn't one voice. It was three, in harmony, though somewhat discordant with anger. Where is the healer? Tarlingan moved one of her hands in an unmistakable signal for he and Kira to remain standing. But she bowed again, this time sitting back on her back leg and folding herself even closer to the floor. Forgive, she begged, and her voice shook. He is here, leader. He has been honored. The leader didn't tell Tarlingan to rise, so she stayed put. But the leader moved. She stepped down from her platform, and Bashir could still only see her waist without looking up. She stood in front of him. Why? Our enemy took his life, leader, Tarlingan explained, as he had, has tried to take yours. The leader's three voices were quiet, the anger forgotten, when she spoke again. And the female? She was with the healer, Tarlingan replied, a little more confident. She was mistaken for his other. The leader turned sharply, and Bashir felt the brush of wind from her robes as they whipped around with her. Why? Leader? Tarlingan's voice shook. So did her hands. Her arms were tiring. We ask the healer, the leader said. Rise, answer healer. Why was your life taken from you? Tarlingan sighed and rose. Bashir wasn't quite sure how to respond. He preferred not concentrating too hard on the fact that he was dead. But Tarlingan had said to answer if he was spoken to. The dumb, the enemy is angry with me, Bashir offered, preferring not to risk elaborating unless it was necessary. She came back around to face him, though that still did not put them eye to eye. Why you? The enemy is at war with all your people and more. Why you? I was their prisoner, Bashir answered, trying to see the Dominion side and not enjoying it, but I escaped. Twice. They tried to kill me before, but I survived. They tried to take my mind, but I kept it. I tried their patience. And you, the leader asked with a swish of her robes as she turned to Kira, was the enemy angry with you? It is possible, Kira replied. I have killed a founder and fought against them. But my life was taken only because I was there when they took his. Are you angry with him? His death caused yours. No. Kira's voice was soft but sure. I am not angry with him. The leader was silent and she walked away. She stepped back up on the platform and stopped just in front of her throne. Look at us, she commanded. Bashir lifted his head, expecting to see her face, but he only saw her torso. He raised his head more and was shocked at her height. She was perhaps twice as tall as the other Gidari he'd seen. She was unhooded and uncloaked. She wore instead gold and jewels and shining robes of red and purple silk. But her face drew his attention. 
lesions. Ugly black starfish-shaped lesions marred the natural beauty of her Ghidori face. It was the blight. And he'd been unable to save Ikoria from it. How was he to save this woman? Take them to their chamber, the leader sang. Bring the healer to me in half a glyph. There is much to be done. She turned and her robes flipped around her long legs. Tarlingan bowed again and Bashir repeated her movements. They waited until the leader was gone, fading back through the wall behind her throne. Then they turned and marched silently out again. Only when the massive doors closed again did Tarlingan relax her shoulders. You did well, she breathed, obviously relieved. She pulled something from inside her cloak and handed it to him. I will show you to your chambers. You can work there. I'm sorry for your loss, Benjamin, Admiral Nechev stated. I know you counted Bashir a friend. He was a damn fine doctor. And Kira, she meant a lot to you, too. Started out rocky, but you two made a good team. Captain Sisko nodded. Thank you. I've notified Julian's family and the Bajoran government. They're sending a new liaison officer. We'll need a new doctor. Of course, the Admiral replied. I'm also sorry they didn't reach that outpost. Bashir was needed there. The Dominion apparently didn't care. Sisko said, a little angry. I wasn't blaming Bashir. Without that aid, however, dozens of the colonists were lost. Still, the war doesn't stop for them or for your people. Keep up the good fight, Captain. We need you there. Of course, Admiral, Sisko replied, letting the anger go. It was a tragedy all the way around. But the war wouldn't stop, and he was damn sure he'd make the Dominion pay the next time they met. Once the door to their chambers closed... Bashir started to relax, but only a little. He and Kira were alone, but they were alone on an alien world in an alien palace, and the aliens expected so much of him. He stopped just inside the door and watched Kira as she moved about, about the room. She moved like a cat, exploring every wall in space. She pulled off the hood as she checked one of the cargo containers. It's definitely the blight, he told her, removing his own hood and examining the device Tarlingan had given him. It took me months to find a vaccine on Teflon 3. This is a completely different species and a completely different environment. It's impossible. The device was similar to a tricorder, except bigger. There were two display screens. One contained symbols that he could only assume were Ghidari writing. The other carried words in standard. It was a translation device. Kira stopped exploring and turned to face him. That's not our main task. Julian knew what she was getting at. That looks impossible, too. We're in the middle of a mountain. He chose one of the crates and sat down on it. There was no furniture in the room beyond countertops and computers. Kira sat beside him. I think you give up too easily. We still have a week. You'll be treating the leader. Maybe you can influence her. She's going to die, he reminded her. Not for a while, she argued. Besides, you may just find a cure. Don't sell yourself short. If we can help these people, we should try. They call the Dominion their enemy. Being their friend can't be a bad thing, so do your best while you're here. The question is, what will I do while you're working with her? Maybe if I can get back out of the palace, I can find a way back to the port. Reconnaissance. She looked over at him, a question in her, in her eyes. Of a sort, she said. Bashir shook his head. No, medically. If I'm going to have any chance at all, I'll need samples from outside. Plants, herbs, whatever might help. It was a long shot, but it could also be a jackpot. A completely different environment, just like he'd said. On Earth, countless medicines had been discovered in the rainforest. Things could be the same here. It will get you out, let you spend time with our liaison. Maybe you can influence her. She's a lightener. Apparently that means something. Kira nodded, and they sat quietly for a few minutes. 
Finally, Kira stood up. We're wasting our glyph or our half-glyph or whatever. Where do you want to start? Bashir stood, too, and patted the crate he'd been sitting on. Unpacking, I suppose. If you'll do that, I'll see what I can find in the Gidari Medical Database. He walked over to the largest of the computers and found that his translation device fit nicely into the console. Behind him, Kira set to work unloading things onto the counter. When Tarlingan Nardek came for him, Bashir had barely had time to compare Gidari medications with familiar ones. A few were similar, and thanks to the translating device, he was beginning to get an idea how, of how they affected Gidari physiology. It was a start. This time he was not taken to the throne room. It didn't seem appropriate for a medical examination anyway, so he wasn't surprised. The room he was led to turned out to be even more ornate, draped in silks and trimmed in gold. A guard had opened the door for him, and Tarlingan had remained in the hall. He went in alone. The door closed behind him, and he couldn't see anyone else in the room. There were weapons here, too, swords and daggers and axes. But there were also symbols, religious, Bashir supposed. There was a bed in the far corner and chairs nearer to him. They were oversized, like the throne. The bed alone was perhaps four meters long. He was in the leader's living chambers. He thought of calling out, but he didn't open his mouth. He didn't move from his spot by the door, either. He was nervous, perhaps because of Tarlingan's fear of this woman. Life and death, she had said. You're already dead, he reminded himself. It was a sobering thought, though it didn't remove all of his anxiety. The leader still intimidated him. Again, he thought of calling out, but wondered if that would be a breach of protocol. Should he step farther inside? Surely, if she was here, she would have heard the door close. Come, healer, he heard, three voices in harmony. He took a step and then another. He forgot protocol and merely walked, but when she stepped out from around a corner, he remembered himself and bowed as he had learned from Tarlingan in the throne room. Rise, she told him. You learn quickly, healer. That is good. But in this case, it is not practical. That threw him off guard, though he did rise. She didn't sound nearly as imperious as she had in their earlier meeting. He didn't know what to say. We do not have many glyphs, you and us, she continued. I am sure that you did not wish to die. Neither do we. When we are not alone, you should bow and behave accordingly. But when we are alone, who is to see that you do not? He looked up at her. She was not dressed in splendid robes, but in a simple one. Her face was bare, and dark green oozing lesions marred the beauty of her blue Gidari face. No one, he answered. She nodded. You will need to look at us, to touch us. We sent for you even when you were an alien knowing this. Now you are honored. It matters less. With that, she sat down on the bed, which brought her to eye level with Bashir. Please, she said. Help us. Bashir felt his anxiety melt away. She was no longer intimidating. She was vulnerable, and she needed his help. She was his patient. He took out his tricorder and moved toward her. The nurses and medtechs all gathered in the infirmary. Jabara brought the wine and Raina the cups. They took turns, each telling what they had thought of Dr. Bashir when he had first come to the station or when they had first started working with him. And then what they felt about him now, after half a dozen years with him as their doctor, their leader. He was young and far too eager, Ilona said. To him, this was frontier medicine, while to us, this monstrosity of a station had been our oppressor and a more technologically advanced oppressor. This, it was the opposite of frontier to me. It was, is, a place to join the rest of the galaxy, and, and yet still remain Bajoran. And in time, I grew to love it here. It's still a monstrosity, but the infirmary isn't. 
It's light and airy and comforting, and Dr. Bashir brought that. Not just the equipment, but the comforting. He had the best bedside manner of any doctor I ever worked with in the camps, that's for sure. He could be funny or just so sincere, and he was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I remember the Gidari, Raina said, how scared I was when they took me. I hadn't been on the station very long, but I also remember how forceful he was in telling them to let me go, and they did. And he was gentle and sweet as he took care of me and gave me my voice back. I remember when they found him after the murderer had poisoned him. I was determined to do my part to make sure he lived because he had done it for me. I've heard stories, Garrett, one of the med techs said. He has this voice. He can make anyone obey him. He got Odo to hold a neck wound and got his med kit back from those warring tribes that had captured them. He just turns on that voice and even enemies obey. Some of the others laughed at that. But he only used that superpower in a medical context. He never used it for evil. Japara laughed too. She'd heard that voice once or twice. I never knew him to do anything evil. Not once. Some doctors become jaded, and so much had happened that could have done that to him. But he never lost his compassion, his need to help. He was a good man, and an even better doctor. No doubt they'll send us another one, she added, and we'll resent them because they're not him. But we have to give them the same chance we gave that awkward, too eager med school graduate that came here all those years ago. He grew on us. We grew on him. The new doctor deserves no less. She held up her glass. To Dr. Julian Bashir, and all the others raised their glasses and joined her toast. Some drifted on after that, but a few stayed and continued to share stories. Jabara cleaned up the glasses and the wine and made sure the infirmary was tidy and ready for whatever need should arise. Bashir would have had it no other way. Kira had waited for five minutes after Bashir left before she wandered out into the hall. She was met with stares, more so now that she was unhooded, but they were respectful stares, and anyone who came close enough bowed to her. I need to speak with Leitner Tarlingen Nardek, she told one man, who, another who wore black. I will find her honored, he replied, bowing again. Kira bowed back, and the man scurried away. Leitner was a high rank, but honored appeared to be higher. That might be useful in implementing an escape. She imagined Odo back on the station mourning for her. He would be lost. He already felt so alone, cut off from his people. Now he would have only his work. Would that be enough for him? She remembered with a shudder his words to her when the female changeling had been aboard the station. It was something she tried not to think about, a mistake he, had, he said was past. But it troubled her now. Would he turn again away from the Federation without her there to hold him? A voice disturbed her thoughts. You asked for me. She turned to see Tarlingan standing behind her. She didn't bow, but Kira didn't mind. She was the liaison. She would have a lot of contact with her and Bashir. It would be pointless to bow every time. Yes, Kira answered. I'm not a healer, but I want to help. I'm honored, so I should have a purpose too. Dr. Bashir wants me to gather plants, herbs, anything that might be of medicinal value. Tarlingan nodded. A wise desire, she said, and a worthy purpose. Gather what you need, I will take you out. Tarlingan led her past a labyrinth of corridors and chambers before they finally emerged outside. Kira covered her head again before stepping out into the crimson sunlight. Is it late? she asked, looking at the darkening sky. 
It will not be dark for several more hours, Tarlingen explained. We have time. Kira had anticipated being taken out near the village, but instead they were high on the mountain, yet still below the tree line. She could see for miles where she stood, and she looked out over the valleys below. There were other mountains behind her, but the land was open in front of her. She could see a prairie of tall orange grass and large animals roaming it. She couldn't make out any details, but they had to be huge to be seen from that distance. A low, rumbling growl came to her, ear, her ears, and she saw one of the animals attacking another. There were groves of trees, and some of the animals fed on the highest leaves. She saw a flutter of movement, like a flame dancing along the grass. Darglin, Tarlingan's voice came softly from behind her. They are the most regal of our world, mighty hunters, and yet, when they fly, they are full of grace and beauty. It's a bird? Kira asked. Then she could see it. The points of fire were wings. Their colors blended so well with the grass beneath that the bird was almost invisible. If she hadn't seen the movement, she would not have seen it at all. I believe that would be your equivalent, yes, Starlingen answered, though that does not sound very regal to my ears. She sounded disappointed, which was not Kira's desired reaction. It's magnificent, she added, hoping to convey her appreciation of the animal. It was magnificent. Perhaps Bashir had been right. Maybe they hadn't come here by choice, but getting to see Gidar was a bright side she hadn't given much thought to until now. The planet was gorgeous, though alien in every way. Come, Tarlingen said, drawing her away and into the woods. Follow me carefully. There are dangers. You may take samples from what you see. I will warn you if something is harmful. Kira noted Tarlingen was armed with a spear, which, given her own honored status, could only be assumed to be for protection. Considering the size of the animals out on the prairie, she wouldn't be surprised if protection were necessary. It was still odd to her to see trees that weren't green. Leaves were only orange on Bajor during the autumn, but here it was apparently a more permanent site. The weather was warm and none of the leaves were falling, so Kira decided it was probably summer in this region of Gidar. There was a soft breeze blowing through the branches, and she heard the sounds of little creatures all around her. Tarlingan walked on confidently, though, so Kira assumed they hadn't run into any dangers yet. But she kept aware nonetheless. Dead or not, she didn't want her body damaged any more than it already was. As she walked, she snapped off twigs and leaves and put them in the basket she carried. She took a snapshot with a Gidari device Bashir had translated so that he could know where each sample had come from. They went deeper into the woods, and Kira could just barely see the red beyond the orange above her. She had to push branches out of her way and watch her step in the undergrowth. Tarlingan stopped suddenly, and since Kira was watching her feet and not her companion, she nearly slammed into the Gidari. Hafta, Tarlingan whispered, pointing to the trunk of a tree off to the right. Kira could now see the large insect there. Might the healer find it of use? Possible, Kira whispered back. She had thought mostly about plants, but the thought of animals had not slipped her mind. She had several small bags with her, too. Can you get it? It would sting me, Tarlingan replied, but you would not be harmed. Walk slowly, silently, and snatch it quickly. Kira took a deep breath. She hadn't planned on catching animals with her bare hands. Okay, so she was wearing gloves, but that wasn't the point. She handed Tarlingan the basket and removed one small bag. She held it in her left hand and crept slowly toward the Hafta. It was actually somewhat exhilarating, reminiscent of her days in the Resistance. They would sometimes have to stalk and hunt animals for food, though she usually didn't have to catch the animal by hand. The Hafta saw her but made no move to rub, run off. It flicked its long tongue at her, and she forced herself to remember that she couldn't feel pain. 
Nothing to fear. She stepped closer. Arms distance. The hafta lifted one of its legs and took a step up the tree, but it wasn't fast enough. Kira's arm snapped out and she caught the insect across the middle. It snaked its tongue out and grabbed at her with its sharp feet. She marveled at how she could feel the sensation of it holding onto her, but not the pain. She stuffed it into the bag, then pulled it off with, of her with her other hand. Well done, Tarling and complimented. Shall we continue on? It was clear as soon as he opened the tricorder. You're a trill, he exclaimed, forgetting all about decorum and protocol. She snapped her head around to him, but he didn't see anger in her white eyes. We haven't heard that name for centuries. But we had not doubted that you would recognize the one within us. Bashir wasn't quite sure where to go from there. His duty was to continue the examination, but his curiosity wanted to know more. Thankfully, he was equipped to do both. He continued his scan and tried to bring the leader out. I have a friend, he said, a joined trill. We have been leader of the Gidari for longer than your friend has been in existence, she said, though without raising her voice. You have questions. It appeared she was willing to talk. Yes, he answered, stopping the scan, but only if you don't mind. You are honored, she replied, dipping her head in deference. I would not deny you. Heartened, Bashir reopened the tricorder and picked up where he'd left off. How did you come to Gidar? She smiled, and her smile was beguiling, set into that beautiful face. Not for the first time, Bashir felt it was a pity that the Gidari hid themselves away from others. That is the only question, is it not? She said. You are wise. Now Bashir smiled. There are those who would argue, he replied, not realizing that he was opening up to her just as she was to him. Since the discovery of her symbiont, she had ceased to engender the fearful reverence she had in the throne room. And you would be one of them, she countered. You are wise yourself, he offered. She was silent for a moment, and he worried that she had decided not to answer. He looked up from the tricorder and waited. I was Trill, she began, eight centuries before this. My host was Nelati, and I have chosen her name for myself in return for her sacrifice. She and three others were exploring this region of space. They crashed on this world. Only Nelati survived, though she could not breathe the air here. I could feel her dying. My people had never seen such a craft in the sky like that which had fallen. They came to investigate. I saw them first, uncovered and glorious, through Nelati's failing eyes. Even as she lay dying, gasping for the poisonous air, she tried to tell them of me. The priestess was the first to understand. I used a scanning device so that she could see me within the host. The priestess took out her dagger and held it up. The leader, Nelati, explained, holding her own hands up as if they held the knife, offering a prayer to the creator, though I could not un then understand the words. Through Nelati's eyes, I saw the dagger plunged through me, through my host. I saw the priestess cut herself with the same blade. Even as Nelati still drew her futile breaths, the priestess took me from her and placed me within herself. I saw Nelati die from new eyes. She had acted out the whole thing with her hands, and Bashir could see the pain and the wonder on her face, much as it must have been on that day eight hundred years before. But the joining, the leader continued, was not easy. I did not know of Gidari or Gidar. The chemicals that had killed Nelati were foreign to me, even as they coursed through my new host. The priestess suffered greatly from her wound and the pain of her, the changing, and now my people knew of aliens. 
The leader was fearful, and he came to our dwelling to destroy the alien that was within the priestess, to kill me. Despite her pain, she stood up to face him, rising from her bed for the first time in three days. Only then were we aware of the change. The leader was so small. He grasped, he grasped his chest at the sight of us and fell dead at our feet. There were others who feared us and sought our death, but none could stand against us. The enemies were vanquished and their supporters destroyed. All who knew of the change were gone, and we, with all our knowledge and strength, became leader of the Gidari. We have been leader since that day. Bashir had listened, enraptured by the tale, picturing it all. The ancient dying trill, the violent transfer of the symbiont, the battles fought. The introduction of one trill symbiont had changed the society as much as it had the host's body, and yet that society had remained distinctly Gidari. It is I, Nelati told him, who told my people of other worlds. I taught them to fly among the stars. My people now trade with many aliens, but we keep ourselves pure. We are Trill no longer. We are Gidari. Kira remembered teasing Dax once about a Palaku on one of Bajor's moons. She was beginning to regret even that lighthearted taunting. She had seen more different and frightening creatures in the last three hours in this one forest, on this one mountain, on this one continent, on Gidar, than she had her entire life up to that point, to the point of her death, though she tried not to think about that. In just those three hours, apart from the magnificent beasts in the valleys, she'd seen sloths as big as two-story houses, water bugs which preyed on the sloths, plants that slapped her hand when she tried to pick the flower from its stem, birds as small as insects, and insects as large as O'Brien's cat. One creature had captivated her. It was an adorable-looking creature, small and covered in lo long, soft fur with large brown eyes. Kira thought it not too dissimilar from the stuffed bear Bashir kept in his quarters back on the station. It sat on a tree branch, half-hidden by foliage, and watched as Tarlingan warily walked past it. Tarlingan had waved Kira by, never taking her eyes off the little bear. Kira watched it, too, caught up in its luscious fur and sympathetic eyes. She didn't see the fallen branch at her feet. It snapped when she stepped on it, and the bear snapped, too. Its eyes closed to menacing slits, and its lips pulled back into a snarl that revealed rows of razor-fine teeth. It leapt toward her, teeth bared and claws unfurled. Only Tarlingan's quick skill with the spear kept one of them from being bitten or shredded by the thing. The next creature of note was not so terrifying. It was annoying. It was a medulka, which translated into standard as mimic, and that was exactly what it did. It mimicked everything. Any words one might say, the direction one took, it stopped when one stopped and started when one started, and it had decided Kira was the most interesting thing in the forest. It had been following them for about 45 minutes already, and it seemed not likely to give up. The mimic was, if one were playing by Bajoran rules of appearance, a dangerous animal. It was taller than the bear creature had been, with leathery skin and clawed toes. It walked hunched over on its back legs, holding its forearms in front of it, much like Kira held the basket she carried. Its toothy mouth seemed to grin at her as it cocked its head from side to side. But this wasn't Bajor, and things were deceptive on Gidar. It, this was a docile creature, a plant-eater, according to Tarlingan's quiet whispers. The mimic either didn't hear her or didn't consider its her its source of amusement. It only repeated the words that Kira said. It had found her at the slapping plant and hadn't even been scared off by the bear creature. Kira had tried to shoo it away, but that only drew its interest more keenly. It had tried to shoo her away, but followed when she tried to leave it behind. 
Tarlingan only shook her head and kept walking. The forest was getting darker, though there was still enough light for a few more hours, according to Tarlingan. Enough time to get back to the palace before nightfall. Kira got the feeling that Tarlingan didn't want to be outside after dark. From what she'd seen in the daylight, Kira couldn't blame her. The mimic followed them the entire way through the forest. Kira stopped for a moment at the break of the trees, and the mimic did the same. She wasn't paying him any mind, though. She was marveling at the color of the sunset. The sun itself had become the deepest blood red. The sky that touched its edges was a glowing crimson that darkened as it reached up toward the mountains and over her head. It didn't seem right that there would be light at all. Tarlingan stepped past her. We should go. It will be dark very soon. It will be dark very soon, the mimic repeated, apparently having decided that a moving, talking Tarlingan was more interesting than a standing, staring Kira. Tarlingan sighed, unhappy with the mimic's change in taste. The mimic sighed, too. They followed the tree line for another fifty yards before Tarlingan abruptly stopped, which caused the mimic to run right into her. Kira stopped, too, and tried to see in the dimming light. She heard a snap to her left, just into the trees. Tarlingan turned her back, but Kira was curious, and she peered harder into the foliage. Then she saw it, close to the ground, perhaps half a meter up into the lower branches of a leafy tree. It was long and slender, like a tentacle, and it reached up and grasped something in the tree. The snap sounded again, and the tentacle lowered, its prize wrapped in its grip. Kira followed the unusual arc of the tentacle as it folded itself forward toward the ground. Kira crouched down to see it better. Stand now, Tarlingan whispered. Stand now, the mimic repeated. Kira ignored them, having finally decided that what it was the tentacle had grasped. A nut. It wasn't even a tentacle at all. It was a tail, a prehensile tail, to be exact, and it belonged to a snake, which now was delicately nibbling the morsel it had, pit it had plucked. Its thick reptilian legs confused her for a moment, but its head and slender body gave it more similarities to snakes, as she knew them, than to lizards. Her curiosity satisfied, Kira stood. Tarlingan and the mimic were both facing away from the trees still. What? she asked, keeping her voice low, but not whispering as they had. Tarlingan's head snapped around. Her eyes were wide, but she still didn't face the trees. Kira heard a chirp and turned back to see the snake step slowly toward her on its two front legs, or rather its only legs. She backed up a bit, but Tarlingan stopped her with a hand on her shoulder. The mimic tried that as well, but could only reach her ribcage. The snake emerged from the underbrush, not one meter from Kira's feet. It still had the nut tucked carefully in its tail, which it now held straight out over its head toward her. It placed the nut on the ground and then lowered its tail. Take it, Tarlingan ordered. Take it, said the mimic. Take what? Kira asked. She really didn't know if they were referring to the nut or the snake itself, which might be a useful sample for Bashir. Take the nut, Kira, Tarlingan told her. Her voice was quiet, but also urgent. The mimic dutifully repeated. Kira really didn't know what they were so afraid of. The snake ate nuts. It obviously was not a carnivore. Besides, she had several of the nuts in her basket already. I already have a sample of those, Kira replied. The snake edged forward a step more and nudged the nut toward her with its nose. Then it backed up to where it was before. Take the nut and eat it, Tarlangan demanded, obviously agitated. Take the nut and eat it, the mimic insisted, hopping nervously from one foot to the other. I'm not hungry, she told them, finding it annoying that she'd have to remind Tarlingan of that. It was Tarlingan who had explained her present state, after all. The snake moved forward again, nudging the nut with its nose. This time it flicked its tongue out a few times. Take the nut, Tarlingan urged, pushing her forward. Take the nut, the mimic squealed. 
Kira resisted. She'd had enough of orders and pushing. She was honored, and she decided now was a good time to call on the respect that apparently warrant that apparently warranted in the Gidari culture. Will you please explain to me what is so important about that nut? The snake didn't move back this time, but stayed right near the nut. It flicked its tongue again, and its eyes flashed red. Tarlingan pleaded, take it. The mimic merely darted away. Kira swallowed. The mimic had run away. The mimic hadn't left their sides for over three hours. It had left the forest without fear. There was obviously something to that snake. Kira slowly knelt and crept toward the snake. It can't hurt me, she told herself. I'm honored. The snake's eyes returned to normal, and it again nudged the nut to her. This time she took it. Eat it, Tarlingan whispered, much more calmly now. Kira wondered if her sense of taste had been altered by the substance within her in the same way that her sense of feeling had. She lifted the nut to her mouth and tried not to think about the spots where the snake had already started to eat. She popped it into her mouth, deciding to chew and swallow it quickly so she wouldn't have to think about it. But she nearly spat it right back out. It was the most bitter thing she'd ever tasted. It burned her tongue and made her eyes water. Show him you like it, Tarlingan coached. She didn't like it, not at all. But she nodded and mmmed so the snake would think she did. It turned abruptly and darted back into the trees. Don't spit it out, Tarlingan admonished. Just swallow it down. Easy for her to say, Kira thought. Explain that. She mumbled, still trying to swallow the foul thing. That snake could have destroyed you in less than a glear, a minute, Tarlingan explained, leading the way back to the palace. It's the most venomous creature on Gidar. Its venom causes rapid necrosis. You would have rotted, honored or not. Kira swallowed the last of it. And the nut? Tarlingan didn't even bother turning around. It likes to share. Esri Dax clutched hard the little bear to her chest as if, by holding it, she could somehow hold on to Julian. It hurt so much more this time, and she knew that was because it was this time, not the only time. She and Jadzia had lost him three times now. Four, really, but they hadn't known he was replaced by a changeling or held prisoner by the Jemadar. Each time before, he'd been her friend. Each time before, he came back. But this time she knew he was more than a friend. This time she knew she loved him, and this time she knew he wouldn't be coming back. Dr. Garani had run a DNA test on the blood they'd found just to be sure. This time, he was really dead. The part of her that was Esri Teagan had never felt that, that kind of pain before. She had lost her father when she was too young to really understand what death meant. Her chest hurt now, like someone had sliced her in two. Everything she saw, the bear, her own uniform, even a bare wall, reminded her of him and told her again that there would be no happy ending this time. The part of her that was Dax offered the comfort of experience to them both. There had been many loved ones lost in the lives of its many hosts. Time would dull the pain. Life would go on. It always had before. But with each new host, Dax felt feelings anew, and the knowledge that it would pass eventually did not lessen the pain that Esri Dax felt. And combined with her present loss was the full weight of all her loved ones lost through time. Esri clutched the toy harder to her chest, hoping that somehow it could bring her the same comfort it had given Julian as a child. 
Julian Bashir found it a lot easier to analyze the changes in Neilati's physiology caused by the symbiosis than the symptoms caused by the blight the Dominion had introduced. The latter had frustrated him for months after his return to DS9 following his discovery of the vaccine on Teflon 3. The former was new and fascinating. No other known species that had acted as a host to a trill symbiont had ever had such drastic changes. In fact, the symbiosis had caused an alteration in the leader's DNA itself within hours of being joined. But it was that DNA change that had made her even more susceptible to the disease the Dominion had cooked up for the Ghidari people. For the Ghidari, the disease would likely behave as it had on Teplon. The weak and infirm, and the leader, would fall quickly, leaving the others to carry it for months, years, or even decades before they quickened. One thing was reassuring, however. No matter what changes had taken place in the Ghidari host DNA, the symbiont remained static. Not even the disease had affected it, just as it had, hadn't affected Dax back on Teplon 3. So it could be passed on to a new host if necessary. The Dominion was most likely unaware of the dual nature of the leader's physiology. Otherwise, they would have taken the symbiont under, under account when designing the Ghidari's blight. The loss of the leader would have destabilized the entire cultural and political infrastructure on Ghidar. He was startled by the door. Kira stepped through backwards, saying something to someone in the hall. She had a basket which she set on the floor so she could shut the thick wooden door. Finally, once it was closed, she turned and leaned back against it. You won't believe it, she told him simply. Bashir smiled at that. Neither will you. Did you find the cure? she asked, standing up straight again. Deflated, Bashir's smile vanished. I'm a doctor, Colonel, not a miracle worker. But I did find something very intriguing. In fact, if I weren't already dead, I'd probably be killed for knowing too much. Something in the basket moved, and a small wriggling bag fell out. Kira snatched it up and held it out to him. I found at least three things that probably would have killed me if I weren't already honored. There are creatures out there. She let that hang without offering any descriptions. I was wondering how you'd done, Bashir told her, taking the bag. What is it? Hafta, Kira replied, picking up the basket again. And that's only the most dangerous thing in the basket. Outside, on the mountain, in the forest, is another story. Don't even get me started on the valley. What about you? What did you find? Bashir set the Hafta's bag back in the basket and leaned closer so she would hear him. A drill, he whispered. What? Kira exclaimed, forgetting all about the basket. Where? How? Like us? Bashir put a finger to his mouth. It was a rather big secret in Ghidari society. They didn't need anyone listening at the door. The leader, he told her, speaking very quietly. Ghidari host, Trill Symbiont, older than Dax by about 500 years. Kira whispered too. How? The air here, the light. The Trill host died, Bashir explained. A ship crashed here. The Trill host was dying, but it made a priestess who found her understand. The priestess took the symbiont into her own body and changed, right down to the DNA. Kira sat down on a chair and didn't say anything for a few minutes. What about descendants? She finally asked. Why aren't we seeing giant Ghidari running around? Sterile, Bashir answered, turning to lean back on the counter. Kira stood. There were successors, though, she said, though it sounded more like a question. This one, Ghidari, isn't 800 years old. Bashir shook his head. No, but no leader has had a child since the first became joined. 
they must have some other system for choosing a leader, or she had her heir before becoming the leader at all. She didn't tell you? I didn't ask, Bashir replied, sitting down beside Kira. If I don't find an antidote, we'll likely witness the succession. I didn't want to remind her of that. At that moment, the Hafsa's bag wriggled out of the basket again. Bashir jumped up to grab it before it got free of the bag. So what else did you bring me? As Kira told him about her day in the forest, Bashir sorted the spoils. He didn't relish the idea of hurting the few small animals Kira had brought, but he did take samples of blood and venom and run them through some extensive scans. The plants were interesting as well. No chloroform to produce oxygen, they were mostly orange in color. Many contained chemicals and components he couldn't even recognize. It would take weeks to analyze them thoroughly. But he didn't have weeks. He didn't even have one week. The thing actually followed me around, repeating everything I said, Kira was saying. Only the snake scared it off. Bashir was only half listening. He had other things on his mind. He was trying to remember everything he had learned about the blight, and he was calculating just how much time he had left before his second life followed his first. Okay, there's chapter two. Now, can you imagine what me and my siblings uh, were doing that was so funny? <laughs> I just, I laugh when I remember it. Um, they helped me come up with this slapping plant. And definitely the mimic. I remember that and the snake with its tail reaching around. I mean, they, we were doing it with our arms and everything. And <laughs> take the nut, take the nut. <laughs> No, it was so funny. Um, I know it's not as funny me telling you now, but oh, back then it was just so, we were just having a, a roaring good time coming up with the animals and things that are in the forest that Kira finds and, and takes samples of. And it was so much fun. Um, it was nice to have that input because it's hard coming up with all these different animals in this world when... I don't visualize well. In Alien Us, I didn't have to name a whole bunch of animals. They were mostly like small things that they were eating, a rodent. I didn't have to spill it. I did have a few names for things. Um, well, there I just really had to come up with a, a word and say, you know, they were most like this in biology because they were primates and those are primates. You know, you know what I mean? So it, I didn't do as much with nature as I do in this. Um, the nature of Gidar is very, very different. The um, Sharu, where in Alien Us, was a class M planet. You know, oxygen was oxygen. You, you could breathe there. You, you weren't going to die. Um, this is not. The sky is red. There's infrared light. The air is different so Tarlingan has to linger in the gate but the humans should not linger why because those gates do something to you because in the town of the port city of Nardinosti you could breathe the air Kira and Bashir could breathe the air that and the other aliens who were visiting could breathe that air they could breathe that air on the ship but when they went through the gate, 
they get this different air, this air that would have killed the original Nailati. So, basically, they're being physi physiologically changed when they pass through the gates and linger. And that's um, going to be important later when we hear more about how the leader got the blight. So, yeah. Um, I kind of felt like I had a lot to say about the commentary about this uh, chapter, but now that I'm here, I don't feel a whole lot of commentary. Um, I remember when coming up with that idea that the leader would be a trill. Oh, and by the way, I'm so sorry. I cannot speak in three voices in harmony. Okay. <laughs> I can barely sing harmony along with other singers. Basically, I, if I can hear the note, I can hit the note. So if I can hear the harmony, I can sing the harmony. But um, there's no way for me, with my simple technology of me talking into my cell phone, can I come up with three different voices that sound in harmony. So, sadly, you'll have to just use your imagination on that one. Every time the leader speaks, you get three voices. That's because she is so changed by the Trill symbiont. And so she grew in size, she changed down to the DNA. So she is a very different Gidari being a joined trill. But as she said, she's, you know, no longer a trill to her in her mind. She is a Gidar. She's she knows that trill is there, that trill has basically assimilated and culturally it taught its pe the people how to fly in ships and to go through space and everything, but they kept Gidari pure. So they didn't make the, you know, Gidar try to reach out to the Trill and, you know, hook up or anything like that. This Trill has decided that it's going to be of Gidar wholeheartedly. So that trill remembers fondly its host, Nailati. So every time it goes into a new host, that host's new name is Nailati. That's what he does in honor of the trill that saved it. She knew she was dying, but she wanted that symbiont to live. And so she helped the, the priestess in her dying spasm. She helped this priestess know to cut this out of me and, you know, save it. She couldn't go farther than that because she was dying, but the priestess did. She put it in her own belly, and for three days she transformed, and it wasn't easy. It was a very crude joining, <laughs> so it was painful, it was messy, and she had no idea she was changing into a giant, and neither did the leader who was a male at the time when he came to kill the, the alien thing inside her. And it saw her when she stood up so tall and it so shocked him he fell over with a heart attack or something and died. <laughs> but others tried to fight her and but she was she's powerful. She's so big. Give her weapons and stuff. She's strong and she and her people and you know were successful and they are the leader of Gidar now. She often speaks in we rather than I. Occasionally she says I. When she told the story, she said I, because that was the symbiont 
telling the story. The symbiont had those memories. So it was I. It wasn't the host and the symbiont. It was just the symbiont. And that's the thing. When she feels more like host, you know, she's doing more from the host perspective, she might say I. Or from the symbiont's perspective, she might say I. But most of the time she says we. And it's not about her three voices. It's about her and her symbiont. That would have been so cool if I could have managed to have the technology to make her voice sound like three harmonious voices, wouldn't it? <sighs> Alas. Well, that was a long story, too. A long chapter, rather. I, again, don't remember the chapter length of the other six chapters, the new chapters. These were all the chapters, you know, these were the chapters I wrote back in 1997. They're not bad, are they? <laughs> I felt no need to change them when I picked the story up again. They were as they needed to be. This is what the magic gave me when I, it gave me this idea. And I didn't have to touch it at all. I just had to figure out where I was going from there. And thankfully, like I said, I had an outline. I had notes. I added notes as I went to help me remember because it kind of gets uh, confusing here and there um, when we're trying to find that cure. But it was a fun ride. Um, and I remember through the years, I'd sometimes be chagrined that I put it on the back burner, but I was stuck on chapter three because I kept remembering or imagining the scene near the end. And I'm like, no, I don't need that one. I need chapter three. So it went on a back burner and it just stayed on a back burner as another story came to the front and another story came to the front and another story came to the front and on and on and on and on it went till it was many, many years after Deep Space Nine stopped airing. And I was on to other fandoms. I was on to other, you know, guys to glom onto. And it was reading, if it's not one thing, into this podcast. I'd read If It's Not One Thing throughout the years. Every so often, you know, every couple of years, I'll read my stories because I, typos breed in the dark. But also, I, I find them to be entertaining. As I've said before here, you know, give enough distance, it almost feels like I'm a reader, not the writer of it. And... You forget all the little details. You remember, might remember the gist, but you forget all the little details and you can still be um, entertained by them. You can still be moved by them. More than a ghost, when I read it here, I cried. <laughs> so, yeah, I can still be moved. Now, some fan fiction writers look back at their first stories and they think they're, they're crap and they delete them or they make a new profile so they don't have to, you know, admit those are theirs. Remember that I started this after college. I wasn't in high school. I was writing stories in high school. I was writing stories in college. Um, they're goodish, and I, they're lost for the most part. Um, but they weren't this good. Um, I got good when. I started writing fan fiction. Some of the stories I wrote before that were probably fan fiction, though I was trying to pretend they weren't. Um, so, 
You know, um, you, the journey and the hardest thing were written about Buck Cross uh, from the Young Writers, and Young Writers was on when I was in high school. And I did start writing a story with a half-breed Indian. It was not Buck, but it was kind of Buck. You know what I mean? Um, it was like that. I remember when I was even younger, a uh, little kid, and the Smurfs were on, and I wanted to make my own cartoon things, and I called them the Smeeps, because I couldn't figure out one of my own. It was a knockoff of the Smurfs. <laughs> um, I guess I'm just made for fan fiction. Some people are able to use fan fiction as practice writing and still write good stories. Una McCormick writes really good fan fiction and then move on to pro fiction. Uh, one YouTuber even called it leveling up. I took offense at that. I don't feel I need to level up to be uh, professionally published. That is hard. You can be really good and still never get past the editors and the, all that to get published. So then you can go the self-published route. And while that's easier nowadays and it's fairly successful for some people, it's still not guaranteed to help you make it. So very few make it compared to all the people doing the writing. Fan fiction, on the other hand, is very democratized. Anybody can write it, which means also we have a whole bunch of crap fan fiction out there. <laughs> but I hope you will, if you write, that you will endeavor to write the gems, not the, not the dreck. Um, also, if you write professionally, you are beholden to editors that say, change this, cut this, whatever, that. And that worries me as a writer, because, you know, what if John Ordover from Pocketbooks had said, yes, we'll publish that story, but you need to cut 100,000 words out of Osviensham. 180-word story, and I'm cutting 100,000 words out of it. What story would be left? You know, they might make me make a change that the magic said, no, this has to be in there. This has to be this way. And the magic is the brilliant one, okay? <laughs> the magic knows the way the story should go. I follow the magic. I write by magic. There's also the freedom of what we can do with fan fiction that I think doesn't happen a lot in profic. And I think if we look at the Star Trek novels, I can give you an idea of this. There are some really, there are a few of the writers of the Star Trek Deep Space Nine pocketbooks that really went a long way toward <laughs> being evil, <laughs> okay? As I say evil, that I, you know, the way I like to be evil. You know, they'd really hurt the characters, really do something deep and scarring. And, but very, usually the people that did were people like L.A. Graff. L.A. Graff was a pen name of two people, I believe it is, two women. And it stands for Let's All Get Rich and Famous. They were fanfic writers. And if fanfic 
oh, we hurt those we love. <laughs> we are really good at being evil. We go deeper. And that's what I love to do as a writer. I love to go deeper. I love to get right into the trauma not just the physical trauma, the mental effects, the emotional effects. If you go on the internet and you look at what I've written already in Finding Home, I broke Malcolm Reed and I'm having to write him in this space where his mind is shattered by trauma, emotional trauma. He had the trauma of what happened to him on Sharu, and then something happens with his family to just break him. The therapist even comments before the breaking happens that he is wounded, but he's not broken. Then the thing happens and he is shattered. And it was hard to write, but it was, it was right to write. And wow, that we can do that in fan fiction. You almost will not read that in professional novels because professional novels are kind of like other professional mediums. So you don't see a lot of dealing with trauma in Star Trek TV shows, for instance. It's getting better. I think modern media like Discovery, for instance, Star Trek Discovery, is doing more with that. They could have done so much more with the Falcon and the Winter Soldier because Bucky is a walking PTSD poster child, complex PTSD at that. Um, but they only focused on his grief or on his, on his guilt. The man was... Well, the man was a prisoner who was experimented on and then rescued. Maybe he's wondering what they did to him. So that's a little stressful. Certainly doesn't want to be captured again. So that's kind of tra traumatizing. And then he falls off a mountain and gets his arm ripped off. That's pretty traumatic. And then he's captured again by Hydra, by the doctor that experimented on before. And they experiment on him again and attach that titanium arm to him surgically. And he wasn't fully unconscious when that happened because we get those little flashbacks in the Captain America and the Winter Soldier where his eyelids kind of come up and he sees these things. And then he's experimented on and brainwashed. And then he's frozen and he's put in that device that puts his brain in a blender like Crossbones says it and has his memory erased and then he's just cycled in and out freezer machine words kill freezer machine words kill for 70 years And then he gets out and he starts regaining his memory because Steve wakes them in that. And then he, he's lost everyone he's ever known and had a connection with except Steve. His mother, his father, his sisters. They're all gone because 
he's outlived them. The world he knew and was familiar with is gone because it was in the 1940s. In that sense, he's just like Steve. Only Steve was unconscious for 70 years. Bucky was sent out to kill people. So, I mean, he's just got so much more than guilt. And they could have shown it. But they didn't. I was really hoping they would. I was really hoping that we were going to get to see that. But they didn't. And that's what prompted me to write my stories because I want to show that, you know, he does have other trauma. And maybe, and I've, the way I've done it is, you know, maybe now that he's kind of getting past the guilt, that other stuff kind of can, can be worked on. So, yeah, it, it's getting better out there in the land of professional entertainment. But it's not all there. Um, we watched the movie The Free 55, for instance. Sebastian stands in it. Oh, he's a bad guy. <laughs> he's a bad guy. Um, and a lot happens to those women. And some of them are more traumatized than others. Um, which is... I think only Selma Hayek's character really shows the trauma that she's in. And she's the therapist. Uh, um, so, you know, it's not always there. Especially in episodic television like Star, Star Trek TNG, for instance, The Next Generation, because it was made to be... Um, oh, what's that word? It starts with an S. Oh, I forgot the word. I do that sometimes. It's like a little aphasia sign that I still get every once in a while. It just goes right away. It starts with an S, and it means that they, you know, other channels can take it, syndicated. There we go, syndicated. Um, they could play those episodes out of order, and it wouldn't make a difference. DS9 wanted to do something different. And that's why it wasn't as popular as TNG, but those who did love it absolutely loved it. The Niners, because it sat in it. It didn't flit to another planet every week. It had to sit in what happened. It had to deal with it. It still didn't do a whole lot with PTSD, it did a few times, but, you know, the things that happened to Bashir in that show would have had a big react, you know, big effect on him. I put him through a lot more just to kind of show it, but <laughs> we can do more in fan fiction. We can put, you know, for those of you who like shipping, you can put pairs together that they didn't show or wouldn't show in professional media. And that's been a haven for the LGBTQ um, audience because they can find even straight people writing MM or FF stories. So there's a lot there. Right now, I know that Garrick Bashir is very popular. And that, uh, excuse me, yeah, Garrick Bashir. I am not in that. I can see Garrick as the gay one, but I don't see Bashir as gay because he 
definitely was heterosexual with, you know, he had crushes on women. He dated women. Um, he didn't seem to be returning that same, you know, he had a friend in Garrick and he met with him, but he, he offered him friendship. He didn't offer him any more. Um, and you'll see my take on that in The Honored. But I'm not going to you know, poo-poo all the people who write Garrick Bashir. In fan fiction, there's room for everyone. So if you like Garrick Bashir, you can find Garrick Bashir stories. And if you don't, you can filter them out. Or if you accidentally open one, you can hit the back button. You don't have to read what you don't like. That's not going to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, which kind of lets me get, me get on a soapbox about feedback. It's I've not gotten negative feedback. I could count on one hand the negative feedback I've received. There are people who do receive negative. And I recently read one on a, fan uh, on a Facebook post in one of the fa fan fiction groups. And it's like... Telling the person they're stupid, they're effing, they're an effing cunt, or things like that. It's like, why would you say that to a fanfic writer? If you didn't like the story, why did you keep reading it? Why do you bother writing something? Why would you insult the artist because you didn't like the story? Why would you insult the artist, or the, the writer, for writing something you weren't interested in or you don't agree with? You have a back button. You don't have to read what you don't like. I have read stories that were good except for a few things, and I've made comments saying, I really like this story, but sometimes... Archer and Tripp sounded like they were using medical terms that they wouldn't use. And these were a bit British when they're American. And if you do that right, you tell them what you liked about it, you, you read the story and you genuinely liked it, but a few things st stuck out, that, that can help an author. And an author who cares We'll do like that one. She said, oh, I'm a doctor. And I'm like, I could kind of tell. <laughs> and she's like, I have to remember to, to, to use those lay terms <laughs> for these people. I've gone back and changed it. So because she was a doctor, it was just all natural to her to use those medical terms. But it felt weird coming out of the mouths of Captain Archer and, and Trip. So she fixed it because I commented on it. So, done well, constructive criticism is just that. You tell what you liked about the story, and then you tell something that wasn't quite so well. And hopefully, you can't control how it's received. Hopefully, it will be received nicely. I've had times where it wasn't. There was um, one writer of some, and other, mostly, you know, like really good Legolas stories, but she had some glaring, 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 absolutely smack you in the face errors. Like instead of Aragorn walking up to a guard, he walked up to a star. 
literally. And I offered to beta for her because they were easy to find, these errors, and so they were easy to fix. Obviously, it was a guard, not a star. She was very vehement that she already had a beta, her sister. And eventually, I found what her sister wrote, and I was expecting it to be terrible because she let that stuff remain in her sister's stuff. And no, her stuff was good. Like, she is she baiting badly on purpose for her sister? But she was, you know, the, the first one was very vehement that she did not want me as a, a beta because her sister did it and she didn't want anything else. So I backed off. So Aragorn presumably is still walking up to a star instead of a guard. <sighs> but hopefully you get it received nicely. And if somebody should send really horrible stuff attacking the writer. They should be banned, quite frankly. There is no reason anywhere to leave a comment or a review that attacks the writer because you didn't like a story. There's no reason for that. Some writers have gotten reviews telling them they should kill themselves. That is just awful. There is no justification for that. None. So, when you review, tell what you liked about the story and then some of the things that stuck out to you that maybe could be changed or fixed. Or just leave a kudos if you don't feel like, eh, and that, you know, that's what I do. I feel like there are um, levels to feedback. If I really like a story, I'm going to comment a lot and fave or kudo it. <laughs> but I'm going to write a lot. If I just liked a story, it was good, I'm glad I read it, but I don't feel like it's worthy of a comment. I'll just hit kudos. If it's worthy worthy of a comment, but not a big paragraph, I'll give it a little comment. <laughs> you know what I mean? If it was otherwise a gem, but for those few errors, I'm going to do that constructive criticism to try to help the author polish that gem up. I don't want any of my stories to have any flaws marring them. So I want to find every typo and I will fix them even 23, 24 years later, if need be, when I find them. And I find them. I have found a lot reading into my podcast. Reading out loud is a great way to find your typos. So try, if you write, try to write the gems and try to polish them. Accept constructive criticism. Ignore abusive feedback. Delete it. Definitely don't listen to it. If they're abusive, none of their thoughts need anything to go into your head of how you need to change your story to their liking. They None. They don't deserve any of that. If you're reading a story and you hate it, just back out of it. Don't read it. You don't need to leave bad 
feedback. You don't need to leave feedback telling them it's a horror sto horrible story. It's just there's, there's no point in that. I've always said there's the mostly direct out there. So if there you, you pick up a story and the summary looks good and you click on it and then go, oh, no, that's direct uh, backspace or back hit the back button. Just leave it. You're not going to turn that into a gym with comments. It's just too far gone. Just let it go. Hopefully in time that writer will get better. That's all you can do is hope you can find enough good stories out there to keep you, keep you entertained. I hope that my stories are entertaining you. And I would really love to hear you say so. <laughs> or give me constructive criticism. Really. I can take constructive criticism. I have one feedback in um, The Honored that mentioned all said all these typos that I sh you know a writer of my quality should not have in their story. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to find that comment again and reply to it. Well, I'm reading it into my podcast now, so it should clean it up pretty good <laughs> because it will. And then I will re-upload every chapter that had a fix. That's what I do. I want to polish my gems. All right. It's late. I need to uh, get these um, get this story edited because I have mess mess ups in this uh, in this chapter, and I haven't edited them yet. I will edit them. I will re-upload them. I will publish this episode so you can hear it. You can tweet me at inhildi i n h e i l d i. You can also email me inhildi at gmail dot com. See you next time.